everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a combined adult and pediatric ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and console questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. I'll present pieces of the story of a patient's case, and we'll pause along the way to hear from our guest consultant. I have our usual disclaimer, all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. Welcome to episode three of the Febrile HIV Summer Series Fresh Start. Uh, This collection is going to cover a few HIV topics in a variety of settings. We covered a new start in adult patient and PrEP in the most recent two episodes, so check those out if you haven't listened. And today we're going to think about HIV and pregnancy. So I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, Dr. Rebecca Zash. Rebecca is an attending physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, or BIDMC, an associate professor at the Harvard Medical School, and a research associate of the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. After medical school at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Rebecca completed her internal medicine residency and infectious disease fellowship at BIDMC. As part of her ID fellowship, Dr. Zash moved her family to Botswana to pursue research on the safety of ART during pregnancy, and she has continued to focus her research efforts on understanding the mechanisms of adverse birth outcomes among HIV-infected women on therapy. In addition to research and patient care, Rebecca also serves as the Associate Director for Global Health Programs for the Internal Medicine Residency at BIDMC. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. So glad that you're here. Thanks for having me. Um, Before we jump in, I like to ask as everyone's favorite cultured podcast, um, if you could share a little piece of culture um, or something that brings you joy or happiness. Well, fresh on my mind is just being able to grill and eat outside. I just love that. Something about early (laughs) summer, late spring, um, (laughs) charred meat and vegetables. That's my favorite thing right now. That sounds so good. It's morning, but now (laughs) I want to go grill out. Well, we are in clinic together today, and our sort of consult slash clinic question is a new diagnosis of HIV. Um, So I'm just going to give you a little bit of information. We have a 25-year-old pregnant female who is coming in in her first trimester, so she's about nine weeks gestation, um, and was diagnosed with a new HIV infection found on prenatal screening. So she's a little bit surprised by this diagnosis, but she has been feeling well and has had really no major symptoms other than the typical discomfort with being pregnant and a little bit nauseous, but she's had no fevers, chills, night sweats, cough, lymphadenopathy, you name it. Your review of systems is negative. Um, She has not been ill recently, and she believes that she's had one prior HIV test and STI screening about five years ago, which was negative. And so this is a planned pregnancy with her fiance. She is otherwise previously healthy, um, has really had no history of infections or STIs, and she's only taking a prenatal vitamin. A very, very brief social history is that she lives in the Northeast U.S. She works in retail, has no pet or animal exposures, and she's been monogamous with her fiance for a few years now. Um, She's had four lifetime partners, and her labs from the OBGYN office demonstrate that she's hep B immune, hep C serology negative, 
rubella immune, and syphilis negative. And so before we get into medications or the other parts of the visit, I thought I could start by asking and hearing from you about how you approach this discussion about a new diagnosis, because in this setting, you have to pull in a lot more information about starting ART and her pregnancy. And so I wanted to see what are sort of the focus points for you and how you guide that conversation. Sure. You know, I think that when somebody has a new diagnosis of HIV and a new diagnosis of pregnancy, there's really kind of a lot to cover. You know, on one hand, often when people are pregnant, especially if they plan to get pregnant, it's kind of an an opportune time to really engage somebody in their health because they're very often motivated to stay healthy for themselves and for the baby. Um, So it's actually, you know, a very good time to engage people. And of course, there's then also, you have to recognize this huge level of anxiety and stress for most people about having a pregnancy. It's new. It's, you know, a lot of people feel like I might hurt my baby when I, I want to do everything right. There's a lot of anxiety and self-pressure around that. Um, and then when you kind of bring HIV in, into it, you know, there's, there's a lot, I think, usually to discuss about HIV for the person who's pregnant and then also how it would relate to the baby. Um, after the baby, they're still going to have HIV. So how, you know, bringing up, this doesn't always have to happen at the beginning, but you're going to have to talk about breastfeeding and about contraception after pregnancy and future pregnancies. Um, So there's a lot, but I think, you know, focusing on sort of the main thing at the first visit being we're here to keep and get you and your baby healthy and and kind of taking it from there. Yeah. And so... At this point, we've ordered an HIV viral load. We've ordered the CD4, um, which are pending. But I I think we can still use this case to hear about your thought process. And so we know that the U.S. HIV perinatal guidelines recommend starting ART for all pregnant women with HIV, regardless of their CD4 count or their viral load. Like you mentioned, with that goal of decreasing perinatal transmission and benefiting mom's health now and in the long run. And so can you tell us a little bit about your sort of general principles you have in mind when selecting an ART regimen for a patient like this? Yeah. So one thing to start that I always start with is, um, and maybe this is obvious to people, maybe not, but I never, you know, my, my main goal is that the pregnant patient gets a regimen that she can tolerate that will get her viral load suppressed as quickly as possible in pregnancy. That is the huge number one through 10 goal. Um, so a, a good regimen that she's going to tolerate. And then number two is to talk to her and think about issues of uh, the safety in pregnancy. And you'll never, ever hear me say that medication is safe or not safe in pregnancy. I, I avoid that language completely. It's, it's always a risk-benefit kind of analysis because we don't know, there's not enough research in the world to know what is quote-unquote safe. We know some risks, we know some benefits of a lot of different medications, uh, but we don't know the full scope of anything. So I think 
the number one thing to, that I, I, I think about is, first of all, you know, what's the best regimen for this person who's going to and what are they going to tolerate? Then, you know, the, the DHHS guidelines um, for people who start ART during pregnancy, there's actually not that many preferred drugs reg- recommended. So it's kind of a, a short list um, for your NRTI backbones. You have TDF, Abacavir, 3TC, FTC, and we're about to add TAF. So those are your backbone possibilities. And the four recommended third drugs are darunavir, ritonavir, adazanavir, ritonavir, dolutegravir, and raltegravir. So that's, that's really the scope of it. Um, so when I construct a regimen from those, I, I really do think about what is the easiest to tolerate and are there any contraindications here? Um, and for the vast majority of people, uh, I'm going to choose dolutegravir. That's, you know, it has fewer interactions. It's clearly from the data, the most well-tolerated. And in terms of the backbone, there's some very recent data um, published in Lancet uh, a couple months ago where they randomized newly started pregnant people. They were randomizing around 14 to 28 weeks to a TAF with dolutegravir, a TDF with dolutegravir, or a TDF with a Favrin's regimen. And all three of those regimens in pregnant people uh, were equally efficacious, got the viral down by delivery. The Favrin's was slower, but the dolutegravir, but, and, and very, very few um, vertical transmissions. But what was interesting is that people who were randomized to TAF with dolutegravir had the best birth outcomes. So they had 15% compared to 23% adverse birth outcomes. So far fewer, about 8% less. So for me, unless there's some contraindication or reason, I, I would usually choose a TAF FTC plus a dolutegravir um, in pregnancy. Um, and and the, the only bummer about all of that is that there's not a one pill once a day. Um, yeah. And again, you know, we, we could choose a bacavir, a bacavir, three TC dolutegravir, but I don't usually start a bacavir, obviously without uh, HLA testing, and and we want to get this going as soon as possible. Yeah, and you've done a lot of work about the questions and thinking about dolutegravir in pregnancy, and I I don't know how familiar all the learners will be that listen to this, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit through dolutegravir and the question of neural tube defects and and how people should think about that as they're counseling patients? Yeah, that's a great question. And I have spent a lot of time <laughs> thinking about this, unfortunately. <laughs> so just to start to remind everybody that neural tube defects are you know a failure of the neural tube to close. And that happens basically within the first six weeks of pregnancy. So it's incredibly early on and we're ta- you know you're talking about somebody who's coming in at 9 weeks so they're past all that so when we're when I'm thinking about the risk of neural tube defects I'm thinking about people who have started their regimen before they become pregnant or if I'm starting a pregnant p- person I'm th- I'm thinking about their next pregnancy and what happened was you know, we were doing a study in um, Botswana where about a quarter of all pregnant people have HIV and most of them are on antiretrovirals so we got a lot of data very quickly. And 
in the first few hundred, about 400, there was four neural tube defects uh, among people who started their dolutegravir before they became pregnant. So that's 1% um, that reported incidence of neural tube defects is one in a thousand. And so we were finding one in a hundred and not one in a thousand. And we'd also looked at, um, you know, about 60,000 people without HIV and about 10,000 people on other antiretrovirals. And all of them had neural tube defects around one in a thousand. So there was this kind of, this is back in 2018. And there's this big to do because it's a small number, but obviously a concerning, you know, very severe defect. And so, you know, unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of other sources of data. So in Botswana, we just kept collecting more and more data and we made our study bigger. And in the years since then, as we got more and more people who delivered on dolutegravir, the prevalence went from about one in 100 and now it's down to about two in 2000. So, you know, with more data, it just doesn't look like either it's not it's it's so small the risk or it's maybe not there at all we're not you know we can't be totally sure but i think that 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 most people feel like clinically that tiny tiny increase in risk there's so many other benefits of dolutegravir that uh we can clearly use it and especially because you know in our context in the united states we have folate fortification in our food and people take usually a prenatal supplement with folate. So if you're folate fortified as a, when, when you become pregnant, your risk of neural tube defects goes down by, by at least half and maybe more. In Botswana, where we do the study, they don't have that. So we don't know if that could have been part of the issue there. So when, when I think about it, again, in a risk benefit, I always talk to people about it when, they're, when we're in the preconception period. Um, I talked to them about what we would do. So we would do an ultrasound. Um, and this is when we would be able to see if there's a neural tube defect. And this is, you know, what would happen if you found out there was a neural tube defect. And this is what would happen if you had a baby who was born with a neural tube defect. And then I talk about all the reasons you'd want to be on dolutegravir. It's easier to tolerate. It's once a day. There's no other drug interactions. And for the vast majority of people, um, it works extremely well. So, so I still, it is a one-on-one -on -one kind of individual conversation with the patient to make sure that they understand. But I think I really emphasize that the benefits uh, far outweigh the risks. And so I was going to make a brief stop here and sort of step beyond this vignette. And we talk about how in most circumstances, a woman with HIV on a fully suppressive regimen should continue their current regimen um, which you were kind of starting to talk about because we worry about the risk of uh, viral rebound or transmission to the fetus. And so I wanted us to just see if you could emphasize any specific ART drug that you would not recommend in pregnancy or that you feel like would warrant a switch if she was had a history of known HIV and was suppressed. Yeah, so the main concern of all of our modern ART, I mean, you know, you could go back and talk about DDI and stuff, but I, I don't think that's really relevant. So for all of our modern regimens, um, the one concern I have is with uh, regimens with cobicistat, because in the third trimester, um, in, a, in a lot of different PK studies, 
Cobisus that lowers uh, the level, uh, particularly of Darunavir, but possibly also of Elvitegravir, because women in the third trimester have a lot of extra volume. So the volume, the distribution is different. There's no clinical evidence to suggest that it wouldn't suppress the virus, but that's partly because we don't have very good clinical evidence. So if somebody comes in on a cobisostat regimen, fully suppressed, I really think about, you know, is this somebody who I want to switch because I'm worried about the third trimester? Or is this someone where the risks of switching might not be worth it? Because we can watch the viral load very closely. You can always add something in, in the third trimester if you have to. And, and the reason not to switch is, again, because a lot of these regimens are one pill once a day, and it may be that somebody had you know, real trouble before on multiple pills. And it would be much worse if somebody stopped taking or, or wasn't able to do a multiple pill regimen. That would be a, a much higher risk of third trimester viremia than the cobisostat. Um, or maybe they didn't tolerate you know, X, Y, or Z. So again, it, it's a conversation. And, and, it, and if it's like, you know, fairly reasonable to switch somebody. Um, I think for the cobisostat regimens and, and its first trimester, I would do that. Okay. And so we start our patient on dolutegravir, tenofovir, and tricytabine. I realized we didn't talk about before, but uh, one other quick question I thought I would ask is how often you would monitor the viral load in this patient who were newly starting on ART who is in pregnancy? Yeah. So, you know, the viral load monitoring, when I start, I usually do once a month in the beginning, just to make sure things are all headed in the right direction. And, you know, the first trimester, if anyone's ever been pregnant, can be a time where it's really (laughs) hard to take medications. Um, So there's a lot of sort of having someone come back in and make sure they're not vomiting their medications or they know what to do if they vomit their medications because um, it does really happen very often. And if somebody comes in stable, you could, you know, viral load every three months. All right. I thought we could talk about breastfeeding. We know that the U.S. recommendations for avoiding breastfeeding and using formula feeding are different than other places. And so I was hoping you could talk about that. But I think my my real question is, what, how do you have the conversation when a woman who's been undetectable comes in and says she wants to breastfeed? Yeah, you know, I think this is a really important question. And I will say that my feelings about this or how I approach this may not be feel super comfortable to other people. So as you said, DHHS guidelines does not recommend feeding in the United States with the main reasons being uh, because for most people, it is safe to formula feed in, in the United States. We have a safe water supply um, and formula is generally available. Um, and then compared to the risk of transmitting the virus during breastfeeding. And, you know, it's not totally clear right now whether U equals U applies to breastfeeding. There is old data from very old drugs, mostly not in the United States, where there were purported case of breastfeeding HIV transmission when the mother had a serum viral load that was suppressed. And there have been cases where virus is found in the breast milk of suppressed people. In the dolutegravir 
Pythavarin's protease inhibitor era, there has not been a documented transmission from breastfeeding. And we know this because breastfeeding is recommended uh, in most high HIV incidence countries in Africa and, and Southeast Asia. So there's lots and lots of people breastfeeding with Valutegravir. And again, we haven't heard of, of transmissions, but it is theoretically possible and very hard to prove that it doesn't happen. Um, so I think a lot of physicians here, I mean, it's much easier just to say, don't breastfeed because we can't be 100% sure without it. But I think what's, again, hard for me is that that kind of discounts a lot of not just the benefits of breastfeeding, but how the the person who's breastfeeding feels about, about it, um, which I think is a very important conversation. There are many patients that we have who have immigrated from places where they breastfed their previous children with HIV on treatment. And so to come and now have some stigma around not breastfeeding, the family might even say, oh, why aren't you breastfeeding? Maybe it's HIV. So there's a lot of that feeling. Somebody who's breastfed a child may feel that it's very important for their connection to their children. Um, or if they've breastfed children before they had HIV. Uh, and then there's lots and lots of messaging all over our country about how breast is best and the benefits of, of breastfeeding. And so, A, those things are true. <laughs> and B, you know, people hear that messaging. So I, and, and what happens in reality, we know from studies, is that when you kind of just bring the message, don't breastfeed, then people surreptitiously breastfeed. Uh, because they really want to. And that's the worst case, because then they don't get any counseling about how to do it safely, and they feel bad, and they're shame. So I always, you know, especially for people who bring it, I, I bring it up to everybody uh, at the first visit, because I think it's something that people have to think about for a while, and people feel very differently. And if people want to breastfeed, uh, and feel that that to them, the you know, the benefits are going to outweigh these kind of theoretical risks, again, for people who are there are, are adherent and have suppressed viral loads where there's no issues uh, of non-adherence or lots of multi-resistant HIV, then we discuss sort of how to do it safely and increased viral load. And, you know, some people would even put the child on a longer course of prophylaxis. Um, so there, there's ways to do it safely. And I think where it's where it's hard is that the sort of ID or OB provider might feel one way. Uh, it's not necessarily how the pediatrician is going to feel. Um, so there also really does need to be discussion between that whole group. Um, but I, but there's DHHS guidelines now um, around supporting people who choose to breastfeed, and and those are very helpful. And and I think again the most important thing is to suss out you know how important breastfeeding is to the person and that they really understand the risks and benefits. Yeah, and I'll put the link to the DHHS guidelines because, um, as you mentioned, there's a specific page for counseling and management of women with HIV who breastfeed, and some tips on how you can have a patient-centered, evidence-based discussion about infant feeding options. Um, I, you know, I know the guidelines have softened their stance a bit by providing these extra points on supporting risk reduction measures in certain scenarios. Yeah, this is this is all new, and I think recognizes that 
the winds are changing. And, and partly that's because we have better antiretrovirals with better, you know, easier to tolerate, lower barriers to resistance, and a recognition that we don't have to be quite so prescriptive. And I, I guess the other thing to add is that while we generally say, oh, people can safely formula feed in the United States, that's not true across the board. There are people facing similar issues as, as people would face in, in Africa in that, you know, they might not have safe drinking water. I mean, let's think about Flint, Michigan, or they, they might not be able to access formula regularly, either to pay for it or to pick it up. They might have very chaotic lives. And so um, there's really, you know, I, I don't think you can say with certainty um, that there aren't people in the United States who, who can't safely formula feed. Yeah. Um, we'll continue this conversation actually a bit more and touch on infant feeding in next week's pediatric episode as well. And similar to the first episode in the series with Darcy, we can see that there are a ton of things to cover in this first visit. And we can't really cover everything in these episodes, but I just wanted to point out and reinforce a few things. We definitely want to make sure our patient's partner is referred for HIV testing. We want to make sure that we discuss future reproductive plans with options and timing for possible contraception based on what you discuss with your patient when she does go in. And just a reminder that the recommended options for ART during pregnancy include the dual NRTI backbones of abacavir lamivudine or TDF with emtricitabine or lamivudine. So that combined with dolutegravir, raltegravir, um, adazanavir, ritonavir. And for that one, remember to think about maternal hyperbilirubinemia. And although there haven't been significant neonatal hyperbilly or chronicterous issues, um, probably would think about neonatal bilirubin monitoring. And then the last uh, combination, the darunavir, ritonavir. And so there are some other options, including efavirenz and ropivirine. Um, but we did talk about uh, not using cobisasat due to potential suboptimal drug concentrations. And so I want to thank Rebecca for coming as our guest. We just have one more episode of this Fresh Start series that will come out next Monday and is going to focus on HIV in the pediatric setting. This episode on pregnancy and that pediatric one are definitely going to complement each other in several places. So make sure to mark your calendars. I will plug the website, febrilpodcast.com, and your source for the episode consult notes. And so you can find links to guidelines and papers that we talk about and resources, as well as infographics that accompany episodes. You can also find or contact Febrile or myself on Twitter, Instagram, the website, email. If you have suggestions, topics, or just want to get involved, please let me know. I am so glad you could join today. Uh, stay safe, and I'll see you next week.